This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part five of a seven part series on will contest focused fiduciary litigation. This series is hosted by attorneys Christopher Hodge and Job Jackson. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Benack podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Welcome back to our seven-part series uh, podcast. Uh, My name's Chris Hodge and- I'm Job Jackson. And we're with Langley and Benack and we've been talking about uh, will contest focused fiduciary litigation and then Uh, Our previous episodes, we've talked in general about the probate process, about issues that arise in and around the probate of a will, and then we've delved into uh, more the the will contest strategies and um, and allegations that can be made in 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 a will contest case. And in this particular episode, we're going to be talking uh, about defenses and um, in addition to that, non-probate transfers. And so in, 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 throughout the course of these various episodes, we've really been focused on um, prosecuting or bringing a will contest and what those claims look like. But of course, um, there's a, the other side to that coin and, uh, and someone's gonna need to defend the will contest. And so um, in, this, in this episode, I wanna talk a little bit about you know, how do you defend it? What do you, what do you need to do in terms of um, to, to make sure that that will is admitted to probate or stays admitted to probate? And one of the, um, one of the, the topics that, that always comes up in most every conversation I have um, with a potential client or a client are no contest clauses. And, um, you know, obviously they're put into these documents, number one, to scare people away from contesting a will but um, you know, number two, to um, that they are enforceable under Texas law. And so, Job, can you talk a little bit about no contest clauses in, in our practice? Well, I think they're extremely common. I think it's actually kind of surprising to me if I see a will without a no contest clause in it, because it appears that in most estate planners, it's just part of their form provisions in a will. And uh, the whole point of a no contest clause, the, the goal behind it is to have a stop sign uh, to anyone reading the will, specifically any beneficiaries out there who may be uh, thinking about contesting the will. And generally what a no contest clause is designed to do is uh, provide a mechanism that says, 
if you contest the validity of this will and the actions uh, taken by those pursuant to this will, um, if you lose your will contest, you inherit nothing. So it's a, it's meant to be a, a pretty big shield to try and scare people away from contesting the will because um, if you have a risk of losing everything that you could receive, it, it really makes people think about whether or not they truly want to go forward with a will contest given that risk. Yeah, and our legislature has um, has taken a little bite out of um, out of no contest clauses, and and they've enacted a statute that says that um, at trial, um, the the way that you would effectively have been caused to invoke the no contest clause is only at trial that if the if a jury finds that you by reason of your lawsuit or your will contest invoke the no contest clause then basically there's what you know for lack of a better term a a, a um, get out of jail free card and if the jury finds that you brought your case with just cause so that would mean that they're facts to support your case and you maintained it in good faith. So if the jury finds those two things, then the uh, no contest clause is unenforceable um, and, and you don't lose your inheritance. So essentially you could lose the will contest and get an affirmative finding on that jury question and still inherit under under the will, assuming that you would inherit under the will that got admitted to probate. And another fundamental aspect of a no contest clause, if you're looking at a will contest and one is in the will that you're contesting is, you know, that clause is only enforceable if the will survives the contest. So uh, if you end up winning at the end of the day, you really have no concerns with the will contest, with the no contest clause, because uh, you've determined it to be unenforceable with the entire will itself. Yeah, and a couple of other specifics about no contest clauses is that they're strictly construed. And so I feel like as, as, this area of no contest clauses has developed more and more over the past 10 or 15 years. They get longer and longer in the documents that we see, but a, a court is going to strictly construe them and not add something in there that it, that it doesn't say. And so, and also there have been several cases, um, reported cases that um, have determined that certain actions by people are not as a matter of law um, a violation of a no contest clause. And so some of those are um, to recover an interest in property that's been devised to you, to compel an executor to perform their duties, to ascertain what you get under the will. Basically, that would be what we call a declaratory judgment to, to try and determine what you get under the will, to compel the probate of a will. Um, so just offering a will for probate, to recover damages for conversion of estate assets, to construe a will's provisions, again, another uh, declaratory judgment, to request an accounting or distribution. Job talked about in one of the previous um, episodes about um, after a certain period of time, any beneficiary has the right to request an accounting of the estate and demand a distribution and the court will compel it. Um, a couple other uh, specific things the courts have found that do not violate the no contest clause as a matter of law are to contest a deed conveying a beneficiary's interest, to determine the effect of a settlement, to challenge the appointment of an executor, and I think that's an important one because that comes up 
uh, probably more often than a lot of these other ones is that if you have a problem with somebody who's been designated as the executor, you can challenge whether or not they are fit to serve as executor, and that is not a challenge to the will that invokes a no contest clause. Um, to seek redress or seek um, make claims against the executors who, bre who breach their fiduciary duty. And so all of those things the courts have found are not, as a matter of law, violations of the no contest clause. And it's really important that the courts have done that because these no contest clauses, as Chris have mentioned, they're not just common in wills, they're commonly getting uh, much longer and broader. And uh, when most people think of a no contest clause, your first reaction is, well, I'm not contesting the will, so I haven't violated uh, the, the clause, but these clauses are commonly being drafted to include uh, any decisions or actions made by the independent executor or otherwise representative of the estate. So it's important that there's those carve-outs to seek uh, redress where an executor is not doing what they should be doing, for instance, providing information uh, to the beneficiary. So it's very important that those carve-outs exist. Right. So a couple of other uh, defenses or something that needs to come into the thought process of the attorney that um, is defending this will contest are, are standing issues. And when we talk about standing issues, we what I mean is who has a right to bring a will contest? And so in, in, gen in general, anybody interested in the estate has a right to bring a will contest, and by that I mean anybody who would inherit under a previous will that was executed by the decedent or testator, the individual that died, or any any of that person's heirs at law. But it cannot be just some um, some random family member, like a cousin or something, that would not inherit um, under any will or under intestate succession, and so. You always have to look at who has standing to bring an action, and therefore, if, if they don't have standing, then um, then the court should dismiss their claims. Mm -hmm. And and that's really going to be something that'll come up very quickly in a will contest. It's just a fundamental uh, principle: is can the person bringing the contest actually be here bringing this contest? Um, another issue, Chris, that comes up is the idea of constructive notice. Do you, you kind of describe that for our audience? Sure. Um, so probate proceedings in and of their nature are public proceedings. And we've talked a little bit about how there are certain things um, that an independent executor has to do that become public record, like the filing of the will for probate. Um, more often than not, the inventory appraisement and list of claims. And so anyone, uh, Texas law has determined that anyone who uh, is interested in someone's estate, that being they are an heir or a potential beneficiary, or anyone who thinks that they might potentially inherit from someone that's passed away, they are put on constructive notice of everything in the probate records in the state of Texas. and the um, constructive notice has been presumed to be actual notice. And so therefore there have been cases in Texas that have held that someone who comes, um, uh, who, who realizes uh, that a probate proceeding has happened uh, years and years after that person has died is charged with notice of what happened in the probate proceeding. And we've talked a little bit about the statute of limitations for a will contest and that only being two years. And so, um, it's, in, it's incumbent upon 
a beneficiary or an heir to pay attention to what's going on after one of their loved ones or relatives have died if they expect to inherit from them and to investigate that or their um, you know the constructive notice provisions of the law are going to bar their claims another defense that we see uh, pretty commonly and it's a, a litigated issue here in Texas is uh, what's called the acceptance of benefits doctrine and what that argument basically boils down to is if you have accepted a benefit under the will you know a distribution of some of the estate's property you are then barred by later bringing a will contest and so how people would kind of uh, use this as a, a weapon if you know let's say you've gotten a will admitted to probate and you want to prevent will contests is you would make quick small distributions from the estate to beneficiaries so that once they've accepted that you could then argue uh, that they are barred by bringing a will contest and the origin of this this policy really goes back to a Supreme Court decision uh, a Texas Supreme Court decision that determined that it is a fundamental rule of law that a person cannot take any beneficial interest under a will and at the same time claim any interest even if well founded which would defeat or in any way prevent the full effect and operation of every part of the will and the purpose behind that was to prevent a person from embracing a beneficial interest devised to him under a will and then later asserting a challenge of the will inconsistent with the acceptance of benefits it was basically a fairness argument. You know, if you've accepted a benefit under the will, you shouldn't be allowed to go back and challenge it, it that will. And at least initially, uh, that Supreme Court ruling was construed and applied very strictly. I mean, if you had even a small benefit that you received from a will, uh, a probate court would look at it and say, look, you've accepted some benefit, will contest is dismissed. Uh, over the years, however, uh, <coughs> A number of courts have applied exceptions to, to that rule because it's it's really a rule based on fairness and uh, there are a number of courts now that have held that uh, when a successful challenge to a will would not in fact would not affect the entitlement to the benefits already received there is no inconsistency inherent in the challenge that, thus you're still allowed to bring the will contest so how that would look is uh, for instance, if you are, uh, you receive a distribution of $10,000 from an estate um, that you'd be entitled to receive under the will admitted to probate, but in your will contest, you'd be entitled to receive $50,000 under the will that you're trying to get admitted to probate, your will contest would not be uh, barred by the acceptance of benefits doctrine. Yeah, and part of this case law is still being hashed out by our Texas courts, but at least that's the that's the law um, in place right now. And, and certain jurisdictions have have different holdings. But um, as we know, what the law is right now that if you would receive more from um, the the will contest by virtue of successfully contesting the will, that even if you accepted benefits under the previous will, you can still contest it. Mm -hmm. But it's a shifting area, but it's a defense you may run into in a will contest. And since we're talking about defenses to, to will contests, one of the last areas 
that I want to talk about is an exculpatory provision. And these are typically hidden in, in wills, but they're what I would term again, a, a get out of jail free card for the executor. And what these clauses typically say is that no personal representative or no fiduciary acting under this will will ever be liable for. And then it'll list, uh, for instance, any act except those committed uh, grossly negligently or, fraud or fraudulently. And so that's just, um, those, are, those are just examples and each will is gonna be different from that standpoint. But the, the way this plays out in litigation over wills is that if there's a claim for a breach of fiduciary duty, um, at the end, if the jury finds that the trustee or the executor has in fact breached that duty, the jury will then be asked, based on the exculpatory language in the will, was the act that uh, caused the breach of fiduciary duty, was it committed maliciously, fraudulently, or grossly negligent, whatever the exculpatory clause was. And so um, if the jury finds that that act was not committed in one of those ways, then basically the fiduciary is, is absolved of liability through that provision. So that's just another defensive technique um, that can be used in these types of cases. One of the other areas that, that comes up in our practice that, that almost goes hand in hand with will contests is uh, these non-probate transfers. And we've, we've talked in general about them in, in some of the previous episodes. But what I'm talking about or our pay on death accounts and joint with right of survivorship accounts, uh, designations, um, uh, beneficiary designations on, on life insurance policies. And so um, in, in general, if you have a case where there has been some undue influence, some malfeasance, if you're concerned about um, um, somebody having been taken advantage of and then you got to also look at what happened to those person that that person's accounts because more often than not those accounts are going to pass outside of the probate process but they can still be a part of the will contest lawsuit mm -hmm. and it, it's very common that you'll see if uh if a person's estate plan is changed in the later stages of their life where you know they'd had a previously had had an even distribution among their beneficiaries for years and then at the last minute it, the will is changed. Um, it's very common that uh, at the same time the will is changed, uh, all of those bank account designations will tend to be changed as well. And a lot of times how this happens is if, if mom or dad are, um, are getting older and, and they start needing help with their financial affairs and they need help paying their bills, then, um, then a lot of times they'll add one of their children to the bank account. And um, uh, sometimes inadvertently, they'll basically gift the entire bank account to that child, not understanding that if they check this box or write this in, that what they're doing is at their, at their death, they're giving that account to that person. And, and then sometimes, you know, the, it's done um, intentionally by the person that's trying um, to to take over that account. Mm -hmm. And that can be very problematic where um, even if a, a testator's will anticipates that an account will be distributed under the terms of the will, uh, but then the recipient of that pay on death designation of a bank account gets the proceeds of the bank account and says, well, 
you know, I know what the will says, but under Texas law, I own this account and, you know, I'm keeping all the money for myself. So, Chris, when we run into a situation like that, what, what are our options? So uh, if you think that a lot of the money is still in the accounts, because typically what happens is this individual, the owner of the account dies and whoever got added as a survivor or pay on death beneficiary, it's their obligation to get a copy of the death certificate, take that to the bank, take or give that to the insurance company. And then the insurance company or the bank will turn over the, the funds in those accounts to that person. If, if you think that that's happened and maybe all of the proceeds are in the account, all, all the money is still there, then um, you can always go get a temporary restraining order. Um, and, and the temporary restraining order and then which follows, you know, by, with an injunction hearing. But the basis of those are almost a similar basis, same basis as that we talked about in our previous episode about will contests. And we, we talk about lack of test, lack of capacity um, it, in, in this stance because it's, it's, not a, it's not a will. We talk about contractual capacity. And Job, can you talk a little bit about the difference between contractual capacity and testamentary capacity? So contractual capacity is, is a, a different standard than testamentary capacity. Remember, testamentary capacity had a number of factors for instance, needing to know the extent of your your property, uh, your family, things of that nature, and hold them all together at the, the time that you execute the will. Contractual capacity is a, a lesser standard, whereas you just need to have capacity to understand the effect of what you're doing when you execute that, uh, that bank statement. So it is a more difficult challenge. However, um, the same type of evidence that you'd use to allege lack of testamentary capacity would be equally relevant to a lack of contractual capacity to execute a pay on death or joint right of survivorship account application. So you'd still be looking at medical records and circumstantial evidence to determine whether or not the person had the uh, physical mental ability to understand what they were signing. So, And a lot of those same um same causes of action that we talked about previously, uh, lack of capacity, undue influence, fraud, mistake, um, all of those can play into a, a cause of action to try and set aside these non-probate transfers. And, and typically speaking in, in these cases, you know, if that has happened, we'll, we'll bring um, the will contest along with a, a breach of fiduciary duty claim or something like that um, related to these non-probate transfers. Mm -hmm. And it's also possible to uh, claim that uh, even if an account is left to say one sibling in a family of many siblings, if there was an understanding among the, the, the family that that account was to be distributed pursuant to the terms of the will uh, or another agreement, you may be able to establish that there is a trust type relationship with those funds to where you have a separate fiduciary uh, ability and avenue uh, to challenge uh, an individual's decision to say, look, you know, I was the pay on death beneficiary. I'm just going to keep all the money for myself. Right. And, and like I said, more often than not, that the, the will contest and these types of claims go hand in hand in the same type of case because if there is malfeasance with the will, you gotta gotta also pay attention to what happened to the accounts. Mm -hmm. So, and then one of our last areas of, of discussion 
in, def- in this, this episode of defenses and non-probate transfers, we talk about powers of attorney. Um, and, and Job, can you explain to the, the listeners kind of what, what powers of attorney are and what types there are? Mm-hmm. So a, a power of attorney, um, you're usually going to look at durable power of attorney. Uh, and what that does is that's a legal document that is executed by a person uh, that allows in certain circumstances another person to act on their behalf. Okay, so you can have a durable power of attorney, for instance, that says I appoint my daughter as my durable power of attorney and she can make financial decisions on my behalf. She can sell my property on my behalf. Um, sometimes these power of attorneys are drafted to where they only go in effect when the uh, principal, uh, the person signing the power of attorney, uh, uh, loses capacity. However, they can also be drafted to where uh, it's effective immediately. There can also be provisions that limits the ability of the uh, the agent's ability to make gifts of the principal's property. Uh, but it really just depends on the actual power of attorney document itself. Um, where these can get very kind of dangerous is if you have someone exercising a power of attorney and disposing of a person's property uh, before their death, really without that person's knowledge. And generally, if you have someone who's going to take advantage of a person to try and influence their estate plan, if they have a, a active power of attorney, they can uh, get to the money and assets that they're trying to get anyways while the person is still alive. You have these, these powers of attorney, and you know there are two different kinds. There's the medical power of attorney that, that allows the agent, in fact, under the medical power of attorney to make medical decisions. But the main one that we're talking about is the statutory durable power of attorney that um, there's forms for it that our legislature has enacted. And most recently, the legislature has very much expanded uh, the possible powers that can be uh, granted to an agent, in fact, under a power of attorney such that the agent, in fact, can change beneficiary designations on accounts, can create trust for the, the principal, the, the actual owner of the property, can gift property. And so got to be really cautious about these powers of attorney to understand the, the nature of them. What do they say? Um, what power did they did they confer upon the agent? And if, if the agent acted outside of the scope of that authority, then they breached their duty to the principal. Um, and so, you know, they just you got to be you got to caution, you know, who, who you, you are allowing to be an agent, in fact, and then what what they're doing with that document. Mm-hmm. And what we'll typically see in our practice is uh, we'll be in a will contest and in that process, you're investigating. Um, what happened with the decedent's assets prior to their death. And you may see uh, unusual activity, money and assets being transferred prior to their death. And you realize that someone was doing that under a power of attorney document. Um, And that's where you start looking into investigating, did someone abuse that power of attorney position? Because if you win a will contest, but there's no property left in the estate, you really haven't won anything. Uh, so you need to go back in and set aside those uh, transfers that happened prior to the decedent's death. Um, thankfully, the, the legislature uh, has recently uh, uh, approved and, and updated the law to allow 
uh, a broad range of people to question and investigate uh, the agent's conduct under a power of attorney. And this can be done even uh, before a, a loved one has passed away, passed away if you know someone is acting as their agent in fact. And the, the law in Texas allows a person named as a beneficiary to receive property, a benefit, or a contractual right on the principal's death. Uh, that being, you know, someone that's a named beneficiary and, and a person's will uh, to institute actions to review an agent's conduct under a durable power of attorney and get a court to appoint a, a, a get a court to grant appropriate relief. I believe that concludes our uh, this episode on defenses and non-probate transfers. Um, thank you all for listening. In, in our next episode, we're going to discuss some of the um, the costs and expenses associated with these types of will contest cases. Uh, this is Chris Hodge. And this is Job Jackson. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Benack podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600.